apologies for this disruption. Turns out there's been a rescheduling of things anyway. So I've been wasting my time trying to sort this out. So just leave that as is. Okay, well, welcome to today's class in political parties and social movements. Um, welcome off campus students. Um, apologies for the slight delay in getting started. Um, it's because the link that I posted on the cloud site. Of course, I noticed nothing has come up here suggesting that it's being recorded, but fingers crossed it is being recorded. we're continuing the focus of the second half of the unit which is focusing on political parties and I know I think some of you have done visions and values in politics um, and obviously visions and values in politics is very much focused on looking at particular political ideologies um, so there's a little bit of overlap perhaps between what I'm going to be doing what we've done in visions and values in politics but in large part, my focus is quite different. We're, I'm not really concerned with the content of political ideologies. I'm concerned with how they might impact on the forms of party organisation that people adopt to advance those values. So, well, the values of the ideology are important, but it's how they impact on political party organisation. So the liberalism, you know, which we'll be looking at today, there's that lemma perhaps that liberalism emphasises individualism and autonomy, and that seems to contradict with the idea of a political party. You know, a political party involving discipline, cohesion, following the leader and so on. Um, socialism, you know, for example, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, emphasises ideas of democracy and popular control, but how consistent is, is that with the requirements of an effective political party? And conservatism now traditionally looks towards leadership by elites, but you can't have a viable political party that's just led by elites in the modern world. You'll have to develop a kind of popular appeal. So in the sort of this week and the next two weeks, I'll be looking at key issues around particular liberalism, socialism and conservatism and how they impact on the political party form how liberals, socialists and conservatives have thought about, well, how should we construct political parties? How should they operate? What have been some of the problems with them? So today the focus is very much on liberalism. And actually, just before I get on to that, I might also just mention that um, I was sort of marking the questions you know, sort of weekly questions for last week, and this was perhaps most noticeable in the off-campus um, 
replies, but you know, I did see that people struggled a bit more with the questions than they had in previous weeks. So I'll be putting something up on the cloud, sort of giving some more detailed responses to some of the questions and sort of teasing out some of their interpretations. I think particularly their question three about valence and positional politics, I think, sort of seemed to throw some people, which is fair enough. So I will be putting something on the cloud about that. Uh, so that's mostly for the off-campus students there. So, I've got this idea of liberalism. And I'm thinking about Australian politics, generally, and the institutions of Australian politics. So, Australian federal politics,
want to be prime minister, you need to get a majority of seats in parliament. Now, in the House of Representatives, voting on legislation, is it ever unpredictable what will happen with a vote on legislation in the lower house of parliament, usually in Australia? really doesn't happen in the House of Representatives. 
the Senate any different than the House of Representatives usually? Does the Senate function differently than the House of Representatives? Does it give more autonomy to MPs? Kind of deliberative element of parliament has actually been revived somewhat over the last 40 years. I mean, the last 12, 40 years, there's only been one government which actually controlled both houses of parliament. Um, and that's been a major change in the political system. Down the increase in the power of the Senate, which can be seen as a kind of liberal thing. You know, the idea of putting constraints on governments and saying parliaments and majorities and so on. But, you know, I think the way in which the system has evolved does pose a kind of challenge for the ideas of liberalism. Because, you know, liberalism emerges at a time before political parties, and the assumption is, well, parliament actually represents the community. Well, actually it represented the white male portion of the community, but in some senses it there was a political community that consisted of white men. Parliament actually represented that. It was a kind of deliberative body in which you know, governments rose and fell. Um, and it wasn't just a matter of you know, choosing a prime minister and then sitting back for the next three years and waiting for something to happen. Um, has there ever been a time in Australia recently when um, there wasn't actually a majority for one side or the other in the um, lower house of parliament. Yes. Anybody know what years that was from? Uh, just about, yeah. Well, 2010 to 13, so yeah, just about, yeah. Um, it's been so long ago now. Um, and in that period, of course, there was what was known as a hung parliament, uh, rather unfortunate choice of words, perhaps, which, um, in which you know, the government did not control the numbers on the floor of parliament and had to um, negotiate with um, minor political forces to get independence through the Greens um, and the two independents. And that was pretty unpopular with voters. There was a viewpoint among voters that voters didn't like the idea of Parliament deliberating and arguing and all the time. They just want the government to get on and make decisions. And it's interesting that in Tasmania at the moment, where there's an election being held on Saturday, one of the themes of the incumbent Liberal government is to say, well, the choice is between us and a minority Labor government that would be supported by the Greens, which is bad. But the choice is between a majority liberal government versus a minority government. So even though liberalism has this theme, this kind of rhetoric of saying, well, 
we value the idea of independence from a foreign influence of Parliament. Voters seem to be a bit more doubtful about that, and there is that kind of history there. So, and from the Australian case, actually, um, in Australia, obviously we had a case, do people know if it's at all common for members of parliament to vote against their political party to disagree with them in parliament? Does this happen very often in Australia? Yeah, it happens almost never. Um, one of the, the Tasmania election actually is interesting because um, Things are always different in Tasmania, but there, the Liberal Party won the last election, and for Yippie, we'd won the election, fantastic. And their sort of star recruit that they had um, got to run for them um, basically got elected to Parliament um, and said, Oh, I'm really going to act as an independent now, even though I'm paid by a member of the Liberal Party, uh, Sue Hickey, um, the former member of Hobart, and caused the government all sorts of problems. Um, until they managed to get a Labour MP to become an independent and then to join the Liberals. But Tasmania was different. Yeah. The Australian tradition basically is 100% party votes. Well, maybe 99.8 or something. So MPs in Australia basically act as representatives of their political parties. Um, Is this a general pattern across the world, or is Australia sort of a bit unusual in that regard? If you were in Britain, did you always sort of expect your local MP to vote according to the line of their party? Australia is unusual, and I've never seen an explanation of this. There must be a reason for it, but no, nobody has sort of tried to explain it to the best of my knowledge. Is that the amount of party 
is extremely highly international standards. Even in Britain, you know, which is a pretty strong party system, it is not uncommon for members of parliament to vote against their party. So, in Britain, parliament has a more independent and deliberative role. MPs do sometimes vote against their party. Um, conservative governments have always had problems with sort of right-wing conservatives who think their party is too wimpy and vote against lots of things, but then the right-wing conservatives won, and now the dissent goes the other way. The Labour Party, now the last time the Labour Party was in power in Britain, it took a very sort of pragmatic, middle-of-the-road centrist line, and a significant number of Labour MPs did often vote against the party. That never happens in Australia. Um, and I mean, that's one reason actually why the Greens, I think, gained a foothold in Australia, is that in Britain, if Labor voters were unhappy with what the Labor Party was doing, you know, if they thought the Labor Party in government was too moderate or too right-wing, they would always say, well, there are some people in the Labor Party who disagree and who, you know, vote independently in Parliament. We also have a spade in the party and support them. In Australia, the fact that the Labor Party now has this tradition of 100% voting was really one of the things that encouraged the rise of the Greens, because people thought, well, if I disagree with the Labor Party, you know, it doesn't matter what my local MP says. You know, oh, I'm very concerned about refugees, really, truly. When they go to Canberra, they're going to vote for party lines and so on. So, yeah, Australia is unusual in that regard. And this is sort of despite the fact, you know, that Australia is this you know, very well-established, very solidly-based um, liberal democracy. So, what I'm saying then is that, you know, we might take for granted the idea of Australia being a liberal democracy, liberalism involving freedom and autonomy, and part of that being the right of people to form political parties, but there's a potential contradiction between the idea of the political party and the idea of, of liberalism. The idea of MPs being independent, free thinkers, making up their own mind on things, versus the reality that you need a fairly disciplined party to win elections, and that to be in government, it's advantageous to have a disciplined party. So if a political party seems to be divided, you know, if it has lots of MPs voting against it, that's usually seen as being a sign of trouble. Voters tend to react against that. And you know, when there was the hung parliament in Australia from 2010 to 2013, voters really disliked that. They wanted a majority government, and it was one reason why the Labor Party was soundly defeated in 2013, um, along with other things. So I'll move on to the lecture now. And in the lecture, I'm sort of going to focus on these questions and you know, make reference to some of the classical literature on political parties and also on social conflict and, you know, and how liberals respond to that. So I'll just bring up the lecture and get started on that. Did I get up the questions? I did not. Aha.
Okay, so liberalism and political parties. So I'll sort of start by saying a little bit about the idea of political ideologies and about how they're different from political philosophies and about how ideologies in a way are concerned with political parties and how they operate, whereas philosophers perhaps regard those things as beneath themselves. I'll then sort of talk about liberalism and its relationship to institutions. I'll then discuss sort of Edmund Burke and James Madison as sort of pioneering theorists of political parties from a liberal kind of perspective. I'll look a bit at the American literature because I think the emergence of political parties in America says a lot about the relationship between liberalism and the project of political parties and how liberalism in a way benefits by political parties but their party polarisation advances too far and essentially undermines liberalism. And I'll sort of conclude by looking at the Australian case of the, the Labour Party, the, the Greens and the Liberals, which I think they're all parties shaped by liberalism, but they've all struggled to engage with the kind of tension between the ideas of individualism and autonomy and how they actually relate to the tasks of making a political party work effectively. So, I think a point about ideologies is that um, ideologies sort of aren't abstract political philosophies. And there's actually a good phrase actually in the reading by Edmund Burke for this week, you know, where Burke says, well, you know, I'm concerned with working out what politicians should do. You know, I'm not so much concerned with the abstract issues of political philosophy, but I'm working out what I should do as a politician. So ideologies in a way then are sort of action focused. You know, people can argue until the end of time about what is freedom, what is equality, but what an ideology does is it says, well, freedom is this, therefore we should do this in government. So they're action focused. And they take these very amorphous and vague and unclear terms like equality, freedom, democracy, and they provide a kind of definition in them. And that ideologies then, I say, are sort of embedded in institutions. An ideology isn't just, you know, political speeches or abstract theory. It's what politicians actually do, and political parties are an example of that. And I think as well, ideologies always contain contradictory elements. I mean, they're never perfectly coherent systems. They always have tensions within them. Uh, you know, conservatism has grappled with the fact that conservatives value culture and tradition, but they also tend to be supportive of capitalism, which undercuts culture and tradition. Socialism talks about equality, but on the other hand, can potentially advocate a greater role for government, which might seem to work against equality and participation and so on. So there are always different elements in a political system, um, in an ideology, that can sort of pull it in different kinds of ways. And so for the margins, they tend sort of to bleed across into each other. So what institutions, what relationship do they have to their liberalism? Well, liberalism believes in freedom. But liberals also believe, well, that if you have freedom, you can constrain yourself. You know, you can sign a contract with somebody, and on paper, you might say that a contract... Um, undercuts your freedom. 
It puts a limit on what you can do. But we sign contracts because we think, well, this is a way to achieve our goals. We might form institutions. Now, if you're a member of parliament and you join a political party, say, that involves a constraint on your freedom, potentially. And that might seem an anti-liberal thing to do, but it can be a way of achieving your goals. So, in the kind of liberal view of society, society is individuals and it's government, but it's also institutions, you know, churches, schools, trade unions, political parties, etc. You know, what sometimes called civil society, and that's a big part of liberalism. Liberalism is never just about individualism; it's these role for organisations. And these organisations are formed to achieve goals. You know, so this is the point um, Aldridge you know, was making in the reading from last week. Why do political parties come into existence? Well, he says it's a rational decision by office seekers thinking a party is a good idea to achieve something. I will give up something. I will join a political party. I will do that because I think that will benefit me, advance the values that I stand for. So in this view, yeah, in a kind of complex society then, in a way liberals have to recognise that there is always going to be authority. Uh, we are going to find ourselves in organisations, we are going to have to be part of hierarchical organisations, and we accept that because we can achieve our goals. So you know, liberalism is not anarchism, it's not forms of libertarianism either, it recognises authority. But there's always, I think, anxiety about that. You know, what if these organisations become too powerful? You know, what if they destroy people's opportunities for individual freedom and autonomy? So yes, set up a polit political party to achieve your goals, to advance the cause of liberalism, but does that reduce your own freedom? If it's taken too far, does it destroy your independence and autonomy as a member of parliament? Is it a kind of counterproductive system there? So, as well, I think, in this kind of liberal viewpoint, you know, people want different things. So there's conflict in a liberal society, but it's conflict within them. You know, there are rules of the game which are accepted and agreed upon. People fight among themselves. You know, they fight to win elections. They fight in the market. But they don't try to overthrow the system. So, in a way, it contains a kind of conservative element so political parties then, for liberals, are such an institution. Potentially good, but also maybe potentially problematic. And I think this tension sort of comes out in the case of Edmund Burke, you know, who is, I think, the, one of the readings for this week and about the first question. Because often when people talk about Edmund Burke, and they think, well, you know, philosopher of conservatism, you know, great critic of the French Revolution, and so on. But he's also one of the pioneer thinkers about political parties and the role of MPs. And the most famous moment is in 1774, when he gives a speech addressing his electors. He represents the English city of Bristol, and he basically says to his electors, "Well, you can't tell me what to do." You have chosen me to represent you in Parliament. I use my independence and autonomy and sense of judgment 
to make my decision on how I vote in Parliament. You cannot instruct me and tell me how to vote. So this is a classic formulation of this argument figure. The role of an MP is to be a representative. You choose somebody because you trust them, you like them, but you, their role is not to be a machine. You, know, you expect that sometimes they will disagree with you. You expect that. So this is a very sort of liberal view of representation. That Parliament should consist of people exercising free autonomy and judgment, not people under the control of their electorate. You know, not people rushing back to attend public meetings and say to you know, people at Geelong or whatever, whatever you want, I will do in Parliament. That's not the liberal idea. But Burke was also a defender of political parties and argued that it was a good thing that members of Parliament should come together and that they should cooperate in the pursuit of shared goals. And you know, this expressed his, his general view towards you know, the practice of politics. Now, as he said in 1770, you know, in um, uh, thoughts and our discontents, which is one of the readings for this week. Yeah, it is the business of the speculative philosopher to mark the proper ends of government. It is the business of the politician, who is the philosopher in action, to find out proper means towards those ends and to employ them with effect. So these proper means include a political party. So political parties, in Burke's view, are good was to enable MPs to come together in the pursuit of shared goals, but MPs shouldn't be instructed by their voters. So there's a kind of tension here. Now, he likes the idea of the party, a party of members of parliament, but he doesn't like the idea of that party and those members of parliament being subject to instruction from outside. And you know, this is a persistent theme in liberalism, this argument for the autonomy of MPs but we are, was in practice, that's no longer the case, you know, in terms of party voting and so on. Now, then in terms of the readings, we come across to um, the example of James Madison. Um, James Madison, an American, of course. Um, anybody know what his um, highest office was in the United States, James Madison? What position did he end up holding in American politics? A fairly successful history worldwide. Well, he ended up being president. He was president from 1809 to 1817. He was one of the people who drafted the American Constitution, played a leading role in terms of getting it adopted. And the reading for this week is from a famous collection of articles known as the Federalist Papers, which was a collection of articles that were published supporting the adoption of the American Constitution, the current American Constitution, arguing that you know, America became independent from the British, 
but it, the constitution that currently has was not the one it started with. There was a new one adopted in the early 19th century, and Madison was very active in terms of doing this. And the Federalist Papers were written by Madison, uh, John Jay, and um, Alexander Hamilton, who of course has recently gained um, fame and celebrity through being the object of a musical, which I'm sure he would never have ex expected, but these are the founding fathers yeah, that Americans love. So Madison in this article is trying to talk about political conflict. And there's a great degree of fear about political conflict. Of course, you know, people are saying, well, America is this new nation. We've just secured our independence from the British. We are under you know, threat from outside, from First Nations people, from the French, potentially from uh, the British and so on. But Madison is then sceptical of factions, particularly factions that are based on social classes. You know, that if people, that it's a bad thing for a society to be divided into different economic groups, rich and poor, you know, farmers versus merchants and so on, that's a bad thing. And he very much, I think, sees economic inequality as natural and thinks that, well, you can only preserve a civilised society on the basis of there being rich people and poor people, and if the poor people try to overthrow the rich people, this will be socially disastrous. You know, they're very much those sort of kind of traditional uh, assumptions there. But he does think that, to a degree, factions are inevitable, that there are going to be coalitions divisions within a society, but that you should try to point them in a particular kind of direction and you should try to avoid class conflict. You want to establish a political system which reduces the effect of factions. And the American political system, you know, the decentralization of powers, the Supreme Court, the Senate versus the House of Representatives and so on, is very much an example of that. Forms to say, well, yes, Conflict is inevitable. You know, we are liberals, we recognise that different people want different things, but we want to limit that kind of conflict, and in particular we want to undermine class-based conflict, the possibility that the poor uh, might potentially cause um, trouble for the rich. So, of American political parties. And I'm now going to say a bit about American political parties in the 19th century because I think they really reveal something about how you see political parties develop under a liberal system. And really I think you can see the United States as being the archetypal liberal society, you know, a society created by norms of liberal individualism, a society in which, say, socialism has never had a great degree of influence. So the way in which American politics has developed, I think, and in which American political parties have, have developed, very much shows how a liberal system emerges, a liberal party system emerges. And what you find in the United States is that there are initially major you know, ideological divisions. 
And these are the visions about, well, how powerful should the central government be? Um, should America look towards Britain? You know, should it see Britain perhaps as being a natural ally? Or should it perhaps look towards France? Should it try to keep out of foreign affairs altogether? And so on. So there are these ideological divisions in American politics, these factions, if you like. And what you find is a process whereby which political parties emerge in the early American uh, political system, which is not what people expected. And this is what Aldridge talks about. Um, you know, he's, it's the kind of process he um, outlines the reading for last week. Members of parliament came together, members of Congress, as they call them in the United States, they bundled issues together. So people who wanted a strong central government tended to be people who were sympathetic towards Britain. People who wanted a weak central government tended to be hostile towards Britain. So political parties came into existence. They bundled these issues together. And there was acrimonious debate about you know, which way the political system should develop. But what happened in the United States as well is that once sort of one side won this argument, and the side that won the argument was the more populist side, the side that was suspicious of the federal government, that was suspicious of England, the side very much associated with people like Thomas Jefferson, they won the debate. And the result was that American politics sort of starts out, apparently it seems, with a kind of two-party division, the sort of Federalists who are the kind of pro-British, pro-central government party and the Democratic Republicans who are the sort of Jeffersonian small government, we don't like Britain party. But you see a pattern that emerges whereby which basically the kind of Federalist regime um, rapidly loses support. And by about 1820, people are saying, well, we're not going to, political parties have come to an end in the United States. There's an overwhelming consensus for one side of politics, which is this more sort of populist Jeffersonian side. But what you see, and this I think often happens within a liberal society, is that if one sort of line of political division fades away, people find new lines of division to emerge about. And what you see happen in the United States, and here the United States is really unique in the world, it's the first country in the world to demonstrate this, is that from the 1830s you see political parties re-emerge in the United States. And you see the development of a clear polarisation between two political parties. And these are actually parties marked by mass involvement. So democratic reforms are going on now they're opening up the franchise to more and more white men. America is becoming more democratic. And you also see a process whereby which voter turnout goes up and up. So this is really unique in the world that America from pretty early on has a lot of public involvement in politics. You, know, you get situations where by which over 70% of people eligible to vote are turning out. There's nothing like this in Europe. But it's also the case that American party politics in this period 
is marked by kind of policy convergence. So there are two political parties, fiercely opposed to each other, popular, highly mobilised support bases, but fundamentally there isn't much divergence in politics, which is very much a kind of liberal model of a party system. I mean, liberalism thinks that you know, political party conflict is good, it ensures accountability for government, but in a kind of liberal framework, you don't want parties to fundamentally diverge on the nature of the system. And you can sort of see this in the case of American politics by looking, say, for example, at how different states voted. Now, this is in 1848. Um, the two parties at the time in America were the Democrats, the ancestors of the current Democrats, and another party called the Whigs, which faded away, but which was the second party at the time. So in 1848, you can sort of see that the two major parties had a fairly even spread of geographical support. So you've got the Democrats winning states in the South, also in the North, you've got the other party winning states in the South, but also winning votes in the North and so on as well. Um, now, if you think about American politics in 1848, um, what happened in the United States um, only about 12 years later in terms of arguments about public policy? The Americans had a big argument about public policy in the 1860s with acrimonious. What did they argue about? Slavery. So it's interesting that you've got a situation which, now you might think, well, slavery. Surely this must, must have been a huge issue. Of course, you know, 12 years later, there's going to be a civil war over slavery, but the party system did not reflect these divisions at all. And political elites, actually, worked very hard to try to keep slavery off the agenda. So even though the sort of Democrats were regarded as being a more slavery-friendly party, the Whigs nominated slave owners to be president, this was a system in which there was a lot of party conflict. You know, voter turnout was high. These elections were very keenly contested, but in which the kind of fundamental issues around how the political system operates were sort of pushed off the agenda. And in a way, in a kind of liberal party system, you can't have fundamental conflict without the rules of the system. Now, of course, 12 years later... Um, you had another election, and by this stage, the Democrats actually splintered over their attitude towards slavery, and you see a process of a kind of polarisation. So, these states in the South were voting for the Democrats, or one faction of the Democrats. States in the North were voting for the Republicans, who were the more sort of slavery sceptical party. So the party system now matched to this sort of fundamental existential social division about how society should be run. You know, should the United States be a slave-dominated economy or should it be an economy dominated by free labour? And of course, after this election, 1860, um, what happened in American politics after 1860? 
party election. Yeah, so the political system broke down. So in a way, American politics, you know, which had looked like an, a classic, you know, a model example of liberalism, you know, people were really involved in politics, there was high turnout, there was regular changes in which party was in office, people were really mobilised and engaged in the political system, but they could be mobilised and engaged because this division wasn't about fundamental arguments about how society should be organised. So, in a kind of liberal framework then, political parties disagree, but they can't really disagree on the fundamentals. And in 1860 in America, the political parties did agree on the fundamentals and the political system broke down. Now, it ceased to be a democracy, it moved into an environment of civil war, it could, have, it could potentially have gone in other directions. So, because one interesting thing is the Democrats actually split into two parties by this stage. Um, the remaining pockets of support actually for the Democrats in the North were mostly for migrants, because the Democrats had the image of being the more migrant-friendly party, um, the more Catholic, the less Protestant party, and, and this had been a significant social cleavage, but this social cleavage was swallowed up by this ideological debate about slavery. So this actually brings us to um, one of the things I was talking about last week. Now, I'll, I was talking about ideas about how you interpret political behaviour, you know, and about this kind of division between a kind of positional politics or spatial politics where people disagree about issues, about whether things are good or bad, versus a kind of valence politics where people basically agree on the same goals, but they maybe disagree a little bit about which ones to, prior to prioritise them or how to achieve that. And this was this sort of concept emerges out of American liberal thinking in the 1950s about political parties. And this could really be traced back to a range of theorists, but one particular people among them is a person called Joseph Schumpeter. Um, and Joseph Schumpeter was an Austrian, a conservative, an economist, but also actually quite influenced by Marxism in many ways. And Schumpeter sort of agreed with Marx that you know, capitalism was this kind of dynamical, dynamic crisis-prone system, but he thought that was a good thing, Marx disagreed. But he sort of agreed with Marx that thinking about capitalism just in terms of a simple market wasn't a productive way of doing so. So that makes him sort of one of the first theorists of entrepreneurship. You know, trying to explain why why new businesses emerged, the role of management and so on. He was really a pioneer theorist of that. And he said, well, if we think about politics, politics really is just a marketplace. You know, political parties have brands. These brands are invented by political entrepreneurs. Voters don't really care. 
vote is not involved in politics. If we're to understand the party system, it's competition between brands. Yeah. It's two different brands of soap powder. Uh, they're marketed differently, they have different slogans and logos and different celebrities to endorse them, but it's soap powder. So in this view, really politics in a sense is modelled as very akin to uh, consumption in the market. So on one hand this is a kind of liberal view of politics. People just choose between political parties, you know, sometimes they throw them out of government. If they don't think they're doing a good job, they put another one in. But there aren't fundamental differences between political parties. Um, the system isn't seen in that regard. voters just choose between two fairly similar parties and this sort of links to partisan ID as well. There are some voters are Democrats, some voters are Republicans, doesn't really mean that much. It doesn't have a great degree of meaning. But this makes America a model of stability. Of course Schumacher um, was an Austrian. Now he'd escaped from Europe and he and later American scholars in the 50s looked across to Europe and said, well, Nazism, communism, isn't America lucky? We don't have this sort of politics. We just have this model of politics as a kind of individualist liberal kind of process. Now, this, of course, is something that very much um, has broken down um, in the United States somewhat. And you see, for example, um, you know, Newspaper stories like this, well, online media stories like this. So this is from um, October last year. Um, an American TV station thinking it was pretty remarkable that they were able to find a couple where um, he was a Republican and she was a Democrat. And this was really unusual and we should go out and interview them. So this is the process an example of a kind of process perhaps whereby which this kind of liberal view of politics, you know, it's just involving a choice between parties as providing consumption goods, you know, vote for the Republicans and you might get, um, I don't know, lower taxes, vote for the Democrats, you might get a bit more health care, it's not much of a difference, replaced by this kind of view of politics as a kind of identity conflict and even sort of seeming as impacting on people's personal lives, you know, there's that American survey data, you know, Democrat parents don't want their daughter to marry a Republican and vice versa. Um, how sort of has this come about? Um, so this is a really big aspect of um, American politics at the moment. So in a way, American politics has moved away from this kind of liberal passive model towards a much greater focus on identity. There's a lot of argument about why this has happened. You know, is this because of social media, educational polarisation, economic division? Um, one argument I think that's interesting that has been raised is that it's sort of shown by this graph, which is um, this 
this is looking at the United States and it's it's particularly looking at the American sort of money market. Um, and the blue line actually is the interest rate on government debt. So if the American government wants to borrow money, it has to pay interest. And what you've really seen happen over the last several decades is that the interest rate on American government debt has gone down substantially. So it's now incredibly cheap for the American government to borrow money. And you know, Biden gets through this what's it, $1.9 trillion stimulus package, sent out through Congress. So for a long period, in a way, American politics, governments have to have been able to spend whatever they want to do. So, so ec economic social divisions have actually become less important in American politics. Politics doesn't involve sort of divisive choices, you know, will we tax this group? Will we decrease social security benefits? American governments basically have been able to do whatever they like. Tax cuts for the rich, no problem. Spend gazillions on healthcare as the Democrats do, no problem. So an argument I've seen perhaps is that because these kind of economic policy choices have become less important in American politics, there's more space for the rise of cultural and identity politics. And it will be interesting to see, you know, if Biden's package, you know, the stimulus bill ends up, say, pushing America back to full employment and, say, interest rates start to go up again, will American politics become more taxes versus spending? Those kind of sort of fairly mundane issues Will it move away from being about these non-material issues of identity and culture? So I think that'll be an interesting thing to look at for over the next few years. So this, I think, means that in a kind of liberal political system, you can certainly see fairly close competition between parties, you know, often very competitive and acrimonious. And particularly in the modern world, I think, you know, with the rise of the politics of identity and the state of religion and traditional norms, parties can become a kind of cultural signifier. You know, people in America say, I'm a Democrat or a Republican. But if you go back to the 19th century, you find something rather like this as well. Party identification was very important to how Americans defined themselves in the 19th century. One reason why you never saw the emergence, say, of a socialist party in America was that by the late 19th century, people were Democrats or Republicans. And it wasn't possible to challenge that kind of allegiance. That tends to go with close elections. And it's interesting in the American case. I mean, now, the last 20 years or so, American politics has been very competitive. You know, people have had all these theories you know, that the Democrats are going to be dominant, but the Republicans keep on coming back. And it was the same mostly in the 19th century in America as well. Two major parties, two parties that sort of seem to hate each other, offers changed fairly quickly, but fundamentally they tended to be fairly close on policy. So, you know, as I was saying, in the early 19th century in America, you see the emergence of this kind of liberal party system. But this system is based on pushing for a 
slavery off the agenda. Now, maybe something a bit like this has happened in the United States uh, over the last 40 years. You know, there's more and more identity politics and personality politics, and Trump was the climax of that kind of politics, but it also went with the kind of rise of neoliberalism, a kind of policy consensus, growing trends towards inequality, and so on. So a kind of liberal party system, I think, can often involve a great degree of conflict and noise, but maybe not that much actual policy disagreement. Now, if you see a process whereby which the sort of consensus breaks down, whereby which the parties fundamentally start to disagree, not about personality or identity, but actually about public policy, then what you will usually see happen is that the system potentially breaks down, you know, as it did with the Civil War in the United States, or even that one party ends up becoming dominant and party competition fades away, if there's a real kind of division there. And you can see, I think, elements of that um, in the Australian case. So, I think an interesting example of that is the case of the Labor Party. Because, I've sort of mentioned this before, I mean, factionalism in a way in the Labor Party is interesting because factions are political parties. You know, you have the Labor Party but you have these little political parties within it. Why do these parties come into existence? Now, how have they come to dominate how the Labour Party works and how the Labour Party functions? Because for a long time, there weren't factions in the Labour Party. Basically, you saw a period during the Cold War, you know, when it was capitalism versus socialism, communism versus the free world, where the internal politics of the Labour Party were very much a kind of winner-take-all politics. You know, the party was divided by state branches, but you know, where the left ran the party in Victoria, they basically completely dominated it and they pushed the, the Catholics and the right-wing out of the party. In New South Wales, where the right-wing dominated the party, the left was completely marginalised. So... The Labor Party was marked then by a real kind of um, positional politics. You know, people in the party, you know, the left looked at the right and said, you Catholic traitors, to destroy the party, and the right looked at the left and thought, you're communists taking orders from Moscow. It was that kind of atmosphere here. Now, of course, that meant with, went with the Labor Party not being very successful at winning government, pretty much being marginalised politically. 1980. What you see happen, I think, is a kind of collapse of socialism in the 1980s. People give up believing in socialism. They tried it in the Soviet Union, it just didn't work. Neoliberalism is the way to go. And the Labour Party in Australia certainly implements these policies. You know, Bob Hawke floats the dollar, privatisation, deregulation and so on. But it's also a time in which you see the rise of sort of social progressivism. You know, the kind of social movements of the 1960s, leading into the 70s, feminism, environmentalism, indigenous self-determination, gay and lesbian rights, all of these things become things in Australian politics. And what you find is that eventually the Labour Party, in a way, sort of combines these two things. 
probably thought he was the person of all people who sort of celebrate this marriage. You know, but the Labour Party basically says, well, yeah, we, you know, we accept the free market is here to come. We believe in responsible economic management. You can trust us with the economy. But we are going to do these socially progressive cool things. Then, of course, refugees and asylum seekers come, come along and sort of blow up that theory. So the Labour Party, in a way, positioned itself. And what factionalism the Labour Party did, I think, is that it enabled a kind of stable politics in the party. Because the kind of left wing of the party could say, okay, we will <coughs> go along with neoliberalism, you know, we accept you know, that there is no alternative to capitalism, but we want to have a kind of social progressivism. You know, we want Labour to be you know, for indigenous land rights and women's equality and feminism and so on. And the right wing of the party could say, okay, well, we will accept all of this trendy left-wing stuff, the environmentalism and the feminism, but the party you know, has to commit itself to responsible economic management, social policies here. So factionalism, in a way, enables a kind of deal to be structural in the party. The left gets the kind of social policy stuff, the right gets the economic policy stuff, and both sides are sort of happy with that. The people who disagree on either side are sort of pushed out, you know, so you're kind of old, sort of hard left people pushed out of the Labour Party. The kind of Catholic conservatives eventually leave the party. You know, look at the party's support for gay marriage or abortion rights, for example. The Catholics go along with that. That also goes to sort of constructing an image of the Labour Party as a kind of identity. You know, it's not about ideology, it's about true believers. It's about I stand with Dan. Um, who's that weird guy on Twitter? Friendly Geordies or Geordies or whatever his name is? He's an example of that. So in a way, I, I think we sort of see what happens inside the Labour Party as an example of a kind of liberal process of politics. These sort of parties emerge, which is what factions are, left and right. They manage conflicts within the party and they go back and forth and they go hammer and tongs and fight each other in court, in court and so on. But fundamentally, they basically agree on where the Labour Party should be going. You know, Daniel Andrews made the Australia's most progressive premier. You know, his deputy is James Bellino, who hails from the Shoppies Union, who are the supposed voice of Catholic conservatism in the Labour Party, but I don't see much sign of James Bellino pushing Catholic conservatism. Um, so I think the Labour Party is an interesting example of that. And the case of the Greens, I think, also has some similarities there as well. This is a Greens ad from a few years ago. Just now. advertisement that very much has this kind of liberal moral appeal. You know, if you stand for something. So the Greens are presenting themselves there as the party of individualism and conscience. You know, if, if this outrages you, if this concerns you morally, you should join.
on the grades. And that's a very liberal kind of branding of this. You know, it's a branding of individualism, ethics, principle, and so on. But putting that into practice, of course, is more difficult. It's certainly a kind of value that's trumpeted at times by many people in the Greens. So this is Christine Milne, who succeeded Bob Brown as leader of the Greens, a Tasmanian from um, 2012 to 2015. And you know, it's interesting that she said, uh, this is from her autobiography, you know, that in a way the idea of a conscience vote was central to her view of politics. You know, never been able to understand how people would stand up in Parliament and vote against what they believed was right um, because the party said so. I would not join a political party that did not allow selected members a conscience vote on every issue because every issue has at its heart a values dimension. So that's a liberal understanding of politics. Politics is about value choices, Members of Parliament should be faithful to their personal values, they should express them, they should potentially defy the political party and so on. And that was actually a kind of argument against some elements in the Greens that disliked the idea of a conscience vote, particularly uh, sections of the party in New South Wales that wanted the Greens to be a much more sort of green members of Parliament to follow the, the instructions of the party. Milne sort of argued strongly against that. But the emergence of the history of the Greens was very much marked by a process of developing a political party and developing a fairly disciplined one. Because, you know, as I say, you know, they come out of this culture of individualism and moralism. Bob Brown, you know, saying, I'm gay for a start, which was a pretty brave thing to say in Tasmania, you know, defying the Hydroelectric Commission, putting yourself on the line, this moral existential politics. But if you look at the 1980s, as sort of Greens began, began to try to organise politically, this posed all sorts of problems. One thing was that there were multitudinous competing groups that claimed to be Green. So in the 1990 election, for example, in New South Wales, there were four separate Senate tickets that all had the word green in their label. So 1990 was the most environmentally shaped election in Australian politics and the Greens really went nowhere because there wasn't a coherent Green Party out there saying to people, you care about the environment, vote for us. There were four, five, several different organisations Another factor, of course, was that if you had a fairly loosely organised political force, you were vulnerable to infiltration and minorities. Um, I think I've come across the uh, newspaper called um, Green Left Weekly. Anybody ever seen Green Left Weekly, the newspaper? They'd be disappointed that people have heard of them. Um, a big challenge for the Greens in the 80s and 90s was the activities of a small Trotskyist grouping. It was called the Socialist Workers' Party, then it was called the Democratic Socialist Party, now it's called the Socialist Alliance. Small party, probably a few hundred members, but they were very much a kind of orthodox communist party, and they 
I infiltrated Greg Meeting and basically operated as a group and tried to use the Greens to secure their own political ends. And this caused a lot of violent controversy and division um, for a long period. So what came out of this was that people who, want, who were office seekers within the Greens, you know, people who wanted to be members of Parliament, pushed the argument about forming a political party. And people like Christine Mill and Bob Brown came to support the idea of forming a political party and saying, we need a political party, we need it to be a fairly coherent one, we need it to be a party that says, well, you can't be a member of another political party. You know, if you are a member of the Socialist Workers' Party, you can't join the Greens and try to be involved. Now, you're either in the Greens or you're in the Socialist Workers' Party. This was really acrimonious, caused a lot of division and conflict, but eventually this happened. And you saw an emphasis on the autonomy of the parliamentary party, saying, well, trust us, you know, we are Green Senators, we know what we're doing. Now, a big factor actually that contributed towards this shift was the events of 2001. You know, when I talked last week you know, about how the rise of the Greens as a political party nationally was very much associated with the asylum seeker refugee issue, a lot of people came into the Greens after 2001 because of that, that issue, a whole new generation. And a lot of these people, many of them have been members of the Labor Party before, or they've certainly been Labor supporters, and the survey evidence is that basically what they want is they wanted the Greens to be a better Labor Party. They were people who were unhappy with the Labor Party, but they didn't reject orthodox politics. They thought, OK, the Labor Party has let us down, we're going to join the Greens, we want the Greens to be what we think the Labor Party should be. So they were happy with the idea of the Greens becoming a more disciplined and organised political party, and as they began to develop seats, in a way this increased the power of office seekers as well, um, but, you know, this has caused some division within the Greens. For example, the leader of the Greens is chosen by, the, you know, I'm talking about the Federal Greens here, you know, is chosen by the Parliamentary Party. The party members don't actually have a voice. Some people in the Greens have been pushing for the leader to be chosen by a vote of party members. Most of the parties leaders of the past are unhappy with that idea and fear that that would be a problem. Um, it's probably gone away somewhat, I think, under Adam Barrett, because I think he's sort of capable of finding a kind of sweet spot in terms of appealing to the different, ten appealing to the different tendencies within the party. But you see a process that, you know, moving from a very individualist culture to a more organised one. And on the other side of politics, you can see this um, happening with the Liberals and the broader political right as well. Because in Australia, the process of you know, people who regarded themselves as Liberals coalescing against the Labor Party happens quite early on. So in 1909, you have the Free Trade Party 
and uh, protectionists join forces. They set up a party they call the Liberal Party. This is to oppose Labor. And this process, of course, is spearheaded by Alfred Deakin, of course, whom this university is named after. And Deakin, you know, had been a left-wing Liberal. You know, he had supported cooperation with the Labor Party. He had often said, well, you know, I feel more in common with the Labor Party on policy than I do with the free traders. I want to, you know, see this progressive alliance and so on. So Deakin comes to define eventually to say, well, we can't work with the Labor Party. We have to form a united front against the Labor Party. Being a liberal means being against the Labor Party. This is what was the conclusion he came to. Fairly reluctantly, but he came to it. Why was that the case? Now, Judah Brett, who I've got to read into this week, um, she puts a lot of emphasis on questions about party structure. Her basic argument is that Deacon, what Deacon really disliked about the Labor Party was that the Labor Party was kind of a machine that said, well, MPs have to vote in accordance with party policy and with party organisation. And that he would not endorse that because this contradicted his fundamental liberal view of politics. That the role of MPs should be to be independent and autonomous, exercising their own judgment, rather than just being agents of the party machine. Now, I think Sherry states it. I'll sort of talk a bit more about that when we talk about the question. But it is interesting that liberalism as a political project in Australia in a way struggles to establish a kind of coherent political party. So you see, for example, that um, they're in power more perhaps because of the mistakes of the Labor Party. If you look, say, for example, at between the two world wars, you know, there were sort of three conservative prime ministers and two of them started off in the Labor Party, were basically defectors from the Labor Party. So the party in many aspects failed to build a coherent structure failed to build a broad basis of popular support. It was very much dependent on support from the business community rather than mass membership and so on. And there always persisted on the political right in Australia a real suspicion and dislike of political parties. And one expression of that was a strange political practice, um, but which was quite influential for a long time, which was what was known as multiple endorsement. So, this is the election outcome in an Australian electorate in 1922, the Riverina, which is in the southern part of New South Wales. So, you can see what the candidates are. Nationalists, ALP, CP is Country Party. What's unusual about the candidates who've nominated for this election compared to what you might expect to see now if CP stands for Country Party? Yeah. So for, for, for a considerable period, it was the Country Party's policy to say, well, we don't believe in free selection. 
we believe that that's anti-individualist and that's machine politics. Rather, anybody who wants to run for the country party can do so. Now, if you're a party member, all you have to do is say, I want to run, you can run. And of course, because by this stage there was preferential voting, the theory was, well, these candidates would swap preferences among themselves and it wouldn't do any harm. Um, so, you see this among the urban conservatives as well. So, there's a strong sentiment in Australia on the kind of political right that's hostile to the idea of parties. Says that individuals should be able to make their own choice. You shouldn't have pre-selection. You, know, you should have a party machine saying, this is the country party guy, you must vote for him. You say anybody who wants to, to run can do so. So you have this system whereby which candidates from the same party could compete with each other. Um, which is the Australian state where this still happens? Where you still get parties from the same candidate competing from each other, fighting against each other to get elected? Happens in one Australian state. The odd state, the state that's different in so many ways. Doesn't have passenger railways, for example, which is unusual. Tasmania, yeah. In Tasmania, of course, it's a multi member electoral system. You know, five members elected for each electorate. Say you want to become a Labour MP, well, you want to get votes from the Liberals, but you also want to get votes from other Labour candidates. So candidates fight among themselves as well as opposing uh, the other party. Probably encourages the fact that Tasmanian politics is pretty consensual in the middle of the road. Um, the one group of voters actually who sort of stand out as voting much more party line in Tasmania are Greens voters, um, which is interesting. Um, and years ago in Tasmania actually, um, Tasmania actually outlawed how to vote cards. So not only do you have a situation whereby which multiple members of parliament from the same party run, run against each other, the party can't give any advice. You know, the Labor Party can't say to Labor voters, well, really we would rather you voted for this guy. You can't do that in Tasmania. That's illegal. So it encourages in a way, I think, a kind of liberal politics, a kind of small liberal politics that's very individualist, very consensual. It fits, of course, with the kind of Tasmanian tradition of sort of Labour and Liberal agreeing on hydroelectric development and resource development, and the Greens being left on the outer. So, how's this then played out in terms of what's happened with the big eligible parties, which is what I was thinking about. Um, what you see with the reformation of the Liberal Party in the 1940s, and Brett talks about this, is that Menzies is very much concerned to badge this new party as a Liberal one. Yeah, Menzies thinks, well, the problem with the opponents of the Labor Party in Australia is they've been seen as being too narrow, 
They've been seen as being too close towards big business. We are going to evoke a party that is very much about independence and autonomy and liberalism, sceptical of trade unions and socialism, but also sceptical of big business and machine politics. And Brett talks about this in her book. You know, Menzies actually you know, goes back and looks at Edmund Burke and says, well, this is the kind of politics that I want to defend. And as Brett describes it in her book, um, you know, the kind of ideal is that you will build a party which has a kind of mass membership, but it will be a membership of this stratum that she calls the kind of moral middle class. You know, the small business people, the sort of middle level professional, the skilled tradesmen, people who live in the suburbs, people who go to church, people who are involved in their sporting clubs, people who represent this kind of individualistic liberal way of life. Not people like the working class, who are this sort of collectivist mass who have to be looked after by the government, people who are liberal individuals. So this is the kind of ideal that's evoked of the Liberal Party that will uphold this kind of value of independence and autonomy. Now, it's always sort of, you know, there's always a big gap between the theory and the practice. I mean, in practice, pretty much the party is dominated by Menzies and the membership are pretty much pushed off to a kind of supporting role. But this is the kind of rhetoric, this is the kind of image that Menzies appealed to. And this goes with a degree of independence among MPs. You know, it's not uncommon for Liberal MPs to vote against the government. The party has a fair degree of diversity in its internal conflict. It's not a monolithic whole. Why does this decline? Um, one big factor, I think, is our social changes in Australia. You know, so at the very beginning of the lecture, you know, I was talking about this idea of civil society. You know, this idea that liberalism says, well, there are individuals and there's government, but there are organisations. And you want to see a society where people form organisations and groups and express their citizenship in this way. This is from some research done by um, Andrew Lee, who was an economist at ANU and is now is a Labor MP. But this is a book of his from about 10 years ago, which is, was about social capital and social cohesion in Australia. And what he tried to develop was an index of membership of organisations in Australia. So trade unions, political parties, sporting clubs, lodges, the Freemasons, churches, everything you could find. And basically you find out that this peaked in about 1970. Since 1970, and the pattern has continued, people don't join organisations anymore. Political parties appeared on the vine, Churches, pretty much so as well. Unions have disappeared. Sporting clubs are fading away. The kind of vision of a kind of liberal society of joiners and people doing things in their local community, it's very much disappeared. And I think Tudor British writes that this has impacted on the Liberal Party. You know, this kind of sort of stratum of people who used to make up the basis of the Liberal Party of disagree, disappeared. The party has hollowed out perhaps become more dominated by office seekers, people who want to get jobs in MPs offices, small ideological groups and so on. And you know, a recent example of this which caused the Conservatives a lot of trouble in Queensland was the debate about abortion law in Queensland. 
that the Labor government um, legalised abortion in Queensland, uh, which was quite controversial. The Liberal Party said, we will have a conscience vote on the issue. But only two Liberal MPs voted with the Labor Party, and both of these MPs were then subject to violent criticism within the party, you know, that they were letting the cause of the party down, that they were being disloyal, that the party should have voted as a bloc to oppose this. And one of the MPs, this um, Jan Stuckey, um, resigned from Parliament, you know, and complained that she had been bullied by people in the party, you know, that the Liberal National Party was, you know, betraying Liberal values, trying to enforce the party line, destroying her individual conscience, and so on. And this has pretty much been a pattern with the Liberal Party more broadly. Conscience votes almost never happen. It almost never happens that Liberal MPs vote against the party line. They've become much more coherent, much more party focused. But this has caused problems and disputes within the party. So in a way, the office seekers may be more powerful. Because if you want to get elected, you probably want a really disciplined party. Yeah, you don't want newspaper headlines saying Liberals split on abortion vote. Voters just see split, that's bad. Another aspect of that, I think, is the whole marriage equality debate. Because in the run-up to the plebiscite, there were constant reports. You know, there were lots of Liberal MPs who supported same-sex marriage. And there was a real acrimonious argument going on within the party about this. But nobody ever crossed the floor. The Liberal Party continued to vote as a bloc. You know, when same-sex marriage proposals were put up in Parliament, the Liberal Party voted against it. And your Kim Wilsons and your Dean Smiths and Warren Inches, those people voted against marriage equality. That wouldn't have happened, say, 30 or 40 years ago on this sort of issue. Instead, the Liberal Party has become much more dominated by office seekers, much more focused on being in power, much more focused on avoiding internal conflict and division. Um, so in some aspects, it's become a lot more like the Labor Party, yeah, because the Labor Party always privileged this idea of discipline and organisation and disliked conscious voting. The Liberal Party has moved in that kind of direction and pretty much you'd have to say it's paid off. Scott Morrison doesn't suffer any electoral losses through having opposed marriage equality, for example. So, I've sort of covered a pretty big range today. Um, but I do think that if you're thinking about liberalism, it sort of crops up everywhere. You know, we live in a liberal society, and not only the capital L Liberal Party, but the Labour Party and the Greens are very much shaped by liberalism. But there's this kind of tension because you value freedom and autonomy and individualism but on the other hand political parties want to achieve things that requires discipline and organisation. So a liberal political party in a way is a kind of contradiction in terms because discipline and organisation go against the values of liberalism and that's the kind of dilemma I think that liberal values um, experience in politics. So that's sort of lecture component there. Now, turning our mind towards, which we are running a bit late. Is that my time yet? 
talking about this concept of faction. Why does he think faction emerges? Now, why do you get factions in a political system? Why are there disagreements, according to Madison? States actually, you know, class conflict isn't workers versus bosses, but basically it's poor people who own lots of money versus the people who need to do that. And this is why the American Constitution, for example, I think has a prohibition against um, uh, writing off debts. Madison was very concerned to say, well, we want to preserve the rights of property. Property is the basis of civilization. You know, property exists because people are individuals. You know, basically, he seems to attribute economic inequality to differences in individual capacity, therefore trying to redistribute income is a bad idea, therefore we should oppose this. So these are these kind of sources of factions. system, you know, there are 12 or whatever states, there will be different factions in each state. So that way you don't get a kind of uniform national conflict, say, between different groups. The conflicts are at the state level, they're broken up, they're dispersed, they're more easily managed. So you have a kind of liberal society that recognises individual differences, but tries to stop them becoming major issues of group conflict. You know, you might always say that individual conflict is good, but group conflict is bad. 
You don't want groups fighting with each other. You want individuals competing with each other in the market. And the danger of faction is that people will then use the government to serve the interests of their group. And you want to constrain and limit that. So that's sort of Madison's view of faction. And this is why the American government is set up to make it difficult to do stuff. This is the whole idea. Now, say, you know, because he says, for my part, I find it impossible to conceive that anyone who believes in his own politics, or who thinks them to be of any weight, who refuses to adopt the means of having them reduced into practice, which is rather convoluted, archaic language there, but he is saying that if you believe in something, you know, if you have these views, well, So, 
you have these philosophers, and they can theorise about politics, you know, until the cows come home, but we're politicians. We want to implement our values, we want to put them into practice. The way to do that is to form political parties, to form groups. And I mean, the backstory here is that Burke was concerned about the power of the monarchy. He wanted to make Parliament more assertive versus the monarchy. He wanted to make Parliament operate as a more disciplined group to oppose the attempts by the king to, to, to manage Parliament. That's the aspect going on there. But it is that kind of viewpoint that um, parties are good. And this is a noble thing. Such a generous contention for power on such manly and honourable maxims will easily be distinguished from the mean and interested struggle for place and emolument. So this is supposed to be that of idealism. People have different ideals, they come together, they form political parties, they accept discipline. So Burke doesn't want, you know, Burke's view of MPs, in a way you might say almost, is that Burke doesn't want voters telling politicians what to do. But he does want politicians to cooperate with each other and come up with common positions. So this actually, you know, in terms of what we were talking about last week, this is your cadre party. Basically, it's a party of politicians. It's politicians coming together, but not subordinating themselves to an outside organisation not being directed by voters. But his thinking about politics is an expression of this cadre party idea that I talked about last week. So the idea here is autonomy. Now, liberalism then tends to value this very influential Australian academic and writer. Um, very insightful, I think. I mean, I disagree with her. I read a review of her last book in which I sort of thought that she, I wouldn't say missed the point, but that I think that she overestimated how important Deacon was, that biography of Deacon she did, but it's still a very good book. So, Fred's talking about Deacon. what Brett argues Deacon saw the role of an MP as being. What, you know, how should MPs see their role? How should they act? What was her interpretation? What's, what's Deacon's view of how MPs should act, according to Brett? I think Deacon would say 
So why, according to Brett, does that mean that he didn't find the Labor Party attractive? States said, but this is the way that you know, the Liberal Party traditionally thought about itself in this way as well. Um, probably also reflects Deakin's own personality, like, no problems. You know, that Deakin is um, he's one of those sort of seeker individuals, you know, deeply concerned with the meaning of life, very interested in spiritualism alternative religion and that sort of thing. Um, very much about intellectual and politics, who was always ambivalent about it. Yeah, but he sees this has been a bad thing. Now, I think Brett overstates it. I mean, Deakin was never going to join the Labor Party because the Labor Party was a socialist party and he disagreed with socialism. I mean, I think she gives too much emphasis to this, but I think it is true, even if I think she emphasises it a bit too much. Um, it's interesting too that sort of Deacon yeah. Deacon of course reminds me of um, Malcolm Turnbull anybody remember Malcolm Turnbull? yes yeah um, and the way and ultimately Deacon sort of squeezed out He's sort of squeezed out by the Labour Party, but the more conservative people on his side of politics are actually more organised and more disciplined. So the kind of conservatives, the free traders, they are less worried about forming a political party. They think, we've got to defeat the Labour Party. They're socialists, we've got to organise, we've got to stop socialism. Whereas Deacon can't make up his mind, and to a degree he's squeezed out. Yeah, and that's one reason why his kind of tradition of politics, um, a bit like Malcolm Turnbullism, it sort of persists in Australian politics, but it, 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 it never gains the support it thinks it's entitled to. So, yeah, so those sort of three questions for this week, they're basically the sort of ways in which I would look at answering them. Um, but, yeah, and I'll talk in a couple of weeks about Labour's view of itself as being a party and how you know, Labour adopts this much more collectivist kind of approach there. But Deakin upholds this kind of liberal idea of individualism and autonomy, uh, which ultimately um, is mostly unsuccessful. So, thank you for your attendance this week. Um, apologies for the slight disruptions with the Zoom thing that ends up not happening that I was working on when things started here. But look forward to seeing you next week when we'll look at conservatism um, which also has contradictions within itself about how it deals with political parties so just hand up the question